So if you were to time travel back to the 14th century and say, well, how are you doing with the Black Death here? They wouldn't know what you were talking about, probably. They didn't have that term. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we have a new health care law that may come to pass through the Senate. It just passed through the House within this last week. It's a health care law to repeal Obamacare. And I was thinking to myself, oh, they're going to repeal Obamacare because Obamacare was not covering enough people and it was uh, it had some flaws. So they're fixing it. So they're going to expand coverage and make sure that more and more people who don't necessarily have means to afford health insurance, they're all going to get covered now. We're going to move forward with a better health care laws. That, that's what's happening, right? I hope. I hear a note of sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right, I can only hear that so far. When I look at the healthcare law that's uh, being proposed here, I can only think that we are moving backwards in our healthcare law. And you had a topic here that may tie into this because you wanted to talk about moving backwards uh, with names of diseases. And maybe we'll start getting some old diseases. If our healthcare starts moving backwards, maybe we'll start getting some old diseases. You have a topic of obsolete disease names. All right. I don't want to really move back to these old ones, but I think it's fun to, to explore them. Oh, so you um, don't think that we'll actually, if our healthcare law starts moving backwards, that we'll actually start moving backwards and, and have these old diseases again? Let's hope not. Okay. But the reason I got interested in this, as somebody who's deeply interested in the literature, I often run across uh, names of diseases that I didn't recognize or didn't know the meaning of, particularly in Shakespeare. But you find uh, heroines languishing of uh, consumption in an awful lot of plays and novels in the 19th century and people having agues and so on. And uh, I just thought it would be interesting not only to identify a lot of these now more or less obsolete names for illnesses, but explore what their origins were. Some of these are not just casual things. I mean, consumption, I think of consumption in something like a, a Jane Austen novel or something of that period where someone could die from some of these diseases. Right. I actually have put my list together in alphabetical order, more or less. Mm -hmm. So I was going to start with ague, which is not so much a disease as a symptom. It's a fever. Mm -hmm. A-G-U-E. A fever with fits of shivering. And uh, probably most of the time when people thought they had the ague, they were suffering from malaria which used to be much more common than it is now. Interestingly, it comes from the French phrase fièvre aiguë, which means acute fever. So the word aiguë, acute, came to mean the fever. Mm -hmm. The adjective was turned into the noun. It was also used metaphorically, uh, so you could have an ague of terror or of anger or any other strong emotion that might cause trembling. 
So the shivering is what's always associated with ague. So it really could be a whole family of causes. And uh, we're talking about a particular symptom in this particular case. Malaria itself is an interesting word. Of course, a modern term as well as an older one. Um, because it comes from the belief that you got malaria by breathing bad air. Mal, bad, aria, air. Mm. Uh, and people used to worry a lot about noxious vapors and so on uh, being disease-causing. Because we worry about pollution in the atmosphere for medical reasons today, too. But they had the notion that that's actually the cause of some of these diseases, which turned out, of course, to be caused by mosquito bites. And so all their attempt to uh, wear masks and do other things to filter out the air really weren't having the effect they wanted. This one turns up in Shakespeare. In The Merchant of Venice, uh, the merchant Antonio is worrying about the storms that may take place at sea and threaten his uh, livelihood because he's a merchant. And he has all these ships out with goods laden and uh, keeps having these sudden flashes of fear that something may go wrong. He says, my wind cooling my broth would blow me to an ague when I thought what harm a wind too great might do at sea. <laughs> Typically uh, complicated Shakespeare way of saying, when I blow on my soup, it reminds me of the wind blowing on the ocean, uh, which might uh, wreck the ships that are bringing all my goods back to shore and ruin me. Yes, and that's causing a lot of anxiety. Right, and so he trembles yeah. with fear in this case. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not what I think about when I eat soup, but uh, I, I guess uh, if I were more Shakespearean, I might have more elevated emotions, maybe. But uh, that's there, interesting that this is this actually is a French word for acute. This is an adjective, actually. There's a, another much more obscure term, ague cake, A-G-U-E hyphen cake. It's a form of enlargement of the spleen resulting from the action of malaria on the system. So what happens is it's an ague cake. The cake is this lump on the spleen, on the abdomen, and it's caused by the ague, which is the malaria. But then it got generalized and was used to label any abdominal tumor. Could be cancer, could be mm. anything. And if it had a, a lump in that area, then it was ague cake. So ague cake would be a generic term for a lump in the abdomen. Right. Okay. So not on the dessert menu after all. Okay. That's unpleasant enough. Let's hear some more. I want to hear some more of these terms from antiquity. Well, one that we still hear used figuratively is apoplexy. Mm -hmm. It's literally paralysis due to stroke, a malady which attacks suddenly and produce dizziness and weakness in the limbs was considered apoplexy. And again, it was studied with e emotions very often. There's an, an entertaining passage in uh, Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part Two, where Falstaff plays a very important role, and he's brought up before a judge. And he says, among other things, that he heard the judge had been ill. He's, he's basically trying to be entertaining and change the subject and get away from being judged. He says, I am glad to see your lordship abroad. That is not locked up at home. I heard say your lordship was sick. I hope your lordship goes abroad by advice. In other words, maybe you should stay home, not be out here judging me. Mm -hmm. Your lordship, though not clean past your youth, 
have yet some smack of an ague in you, some relish of the saltiness of time in you, and I must humbly beseech your lordship to have a reverent care of your health. So when he says you're not clean past your youth, clean in this means clear, clear past, uh, all the way past. So he's not saying he's not clean. He's getting old. You're subject to being sick. And then he goes on to claim that his friend, formerly Prince Hal, now King Henry, has been similarly afflicted. And I hear, moreover, his highness has fallen into the same horsome apoplexy. Horson is a, just what it sounds like, it's a whore's son, son of a bitch. And it was used for all kinds, it was pretty mild oath, as Elizabethan oaths went, and it could be put in front of anything that you were wanting to make a negative point about. The Chief Justice says, well, God mend him. I pray you, let me speak with you. This apoplexy, as I take it, is a kind of lethargy, and please your lordship, a kind of sleeping in the blood, a horse and tingling. What tell you me of it? Be it as it is. Falstaff comes back. It hath its original from much grief, from study and perturbation of the brain. I have read the cause of his effects in Galen. It is a kind of deafness. Galen, of course, being a great scholar of medicine being referred to in the Renaissance. I think you are fallen into the disease, for you hear not what I say to you. <laughs> That's the Chief Justice response to uh, Falstaff. Because he had a pretty good wit himself. Yeah, the Chief Justice comes in with the smackdown at the end. We got a twofer in that passage because uh, we mentioned uh, ague and we mentioned apoplexy. Right. And the other most common one that you find in Shakespeare is pox. And out of alphabetical order here, because it has a lot of different names, uh, one of which is bad blood. It was known as the French disease, Morbus Gallicus in Latin, and the great pox. It comes, it has a, a really nicely, very simple uh, origin, P-O-C-K-S, pox. A pox was a little pustule. And there were pustules associated with lots of different diseases. So you had smallpox, cowpox, chickenpox, and the great pox. But when you said just plain pox, it usually meant syphilis. It used a lot as a curse in the Renaissance, like Horson. And from an anonymous article in the 1913 Urologic and Cutaneous Review, which I found thanks to Google Books, <laughs> the word pox reminds one of the frequent use Shakespeare made of it. It occurs at least four or five and twenty times collectively in fifteen of his plays. He used it as a curse or an imprecation of impatience or evil. Thus Iago says to Rodrigo, who talking of drowning himself, a pox on drowning thyself. In Love's Labor's Lost, we find even ladies of quality, ladies in attendance on the Princess of France, making similar exclamations such as, a pox of that jest. In All's Well That Ends Well, a French lord in a camp near Florence says of a soldier, let him fetch off his drum, and he is answered by another French lord, a pox on, let it go, tis but a drum. Well, the English called it the French disease, because they imagined the French had originated it. In France, however, it was known as the Italian disease, and as the Spanish disease, and that may have been, in fact, true. There is a theory, somewhat controversial, but still with quite a bit of evidence on its side that there was no syphilis in the form that we know it now in Europe before Columbus's sailors came back from the Western Hemisphere. And there is some evidence that Native Americans were suffering from syphilis before any Europeans were. 
So the theory is, of course, that the sailors got involved with some infected women in the New World and brought it back to Europe. Um, it explodes not long after Columbus's return. So um, that is sometimes associated with a theory called the Columbian Exchange. And my late friend Al Crosby, who was a colleague of mine at Washington State University, wrote a book by that title, Columbian Exchange. And how, of course, uh, we are often hear about the diseases that were brought by Europeans to the Native Americans and how they were just decimated in a, in a rather extreme sense um, by them. Uh, less often, the idea that the uh, Native Americans may have had an exchange of diseases that traveled back to Europe. Oh, that's interesting. I had never heard that theory before. But you say it's not necessarily accepted widely as, as fact. It is fairly well widely accepted, except it's controversial because it would seem to make, say something negative about Native Americans. And I think people are anxious to argue against it more for political reasons than scientific ones. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, it is interesting that it emerged just at, at that point in history and Europeans had no resistance. And uh, it, it was pretty devastating. Um, but it's interesting how they developed very quickly the tendency to joke about it all the time so that the pox became just a very mild swear word. Mm -hmm. Well, when I think about old names for old diseases and old ways of looking at medicine and so on, uh, of course, one of the things is uh, we think of you need to be bled, you need to leeches attached. But another another big one that comes to my mind is this idea of the humors. And right. I think you wanted to talk a little bit about that uh, in your next term. Yeah, humors aren't about being funny. They're uh, liquids. Yeah. And the idea was that there were four liquids in your body that uh, were called the humors. Mm -hmm. And uh, these were blood, phlegm, and bile, and a bile was divided into yellow bile and black bile. And choler is also a nice C-H-O-L-E-R is another term for it. One of the common diseases was bilious fever. Mm. The idea of this theory was that illnesses were caused by an imbalance of these. And, and the bleeding actually was meant to restore that balance. That is related to the leaching too. Yes. So intestinal fevers, typhoid, malaria, hepatitis, any of those could be called a bilious disease and supposedly caused by an excess of yellow bile secreted by the liver. And it was associated in this theory with wrathfulness and ill temper. So somebody that had too much bile was bilious and bilious could mean crabby and angry and given to shouting at people and so on. Choler, C-H-O-L-E-R, the, the synonym, is something we still have. The term choleric is used occasionally as a learned term for tending toward anger. Now, black bile was another of the four humors, and that's associated with melancholy. So you can go from being very angry with yellow bile to being terribly depressed with black bile. And the other two humors, uh, blood, could make you sanguine. And we still use that word. And it's from a word meaning blood. And it means uh, optimistic, happy, upbeat. And phlegm, <laughs> I don't know where they got the idea that phlegm 
P-H-L-E-G-M, could be one of the main constituents of the human body. It seems pretty narrow. But it's, of course, it's right up there where you notice it in your nose and mouth. I have a good deal of it at the moment. I'm recovering mm. from a cold. But uh, if you have too much phlegm, it makes you phlegmatic, which means sort of you know, laid back and inactive and so on at least in, in its modern uh, sense. So the, even though we don't really believe in this theory anymore, we still use some of the terms that are associated with it. It's interesting that uh, emotions were often associated with these disease names and the words continue to be used of the emotions, even though we don't really believe in the diseases mm -hmm. anymore. Well, uh, let's go from the unpleasant to the downright completely depressing Black death. Yeah, I guess if, it, if you ask people about uh, what about diseases in the Middle Ages, the first thing they talk about is mm. the plague, uh, specifically the Black Death. We call it now bubonic plague. It first reached Europe in the 14th century, seems to have come from Asia, uh, killed between 30 and 60 percent of the population. Uh, was it just it was something that had percolated in other lands for many centuries and had outbreaks from time to time there some very tangential evidence that there used to be outbreaks of it in, in italy and in, in ancient rome is it's hard to trace but it killed a enormous number of people and there was a, a lot uh, of reaction to it in, in various ways boccaccio's decameron is uh, a classic work which collects entertaining stories that are told by a group of folks who have retreated to the countryside to get away from the plague. It took three centuries for the population of Europe to recover to the same level that it was before the Black Death struck. I have a, an odd connection with this myself because uh, the 14th century, when it erupted, was a bad time for Europe in a lot of different ways, and that's reflected in a famous best-selling history book by Barbara Tuchman, A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. And uh, my connection with this is simply that in her bibliography at the back of the book, she lists my book, <laughs> Body Tales from the Courts of Medieval France. Ah, there we go. So <laughs> evidently she read it. <laughs> I don't know if she got any inspiration from it, but she thought it was worth citing. The only scholarly citation that book has ever gotten, as far as I know. Mm. Well, that's a good one. I haven't read the history, but it's one of the classics. The term Black Death, or in Latin, Mors Nigra, was used in 1350 first by Simon de Covino, or Couvin, a Belgian astronomer, who wrote a poem on the judgment of the sun at a feast of Saturn which attributes the plague to a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Of course, astrology was huge in those days, and they often thought that things like comets going by could spread plague. In England, it was not until 1823 that the medieval epidemic was first called the Black Death. So if you were to time travel back to the 14th century and say, well, how are you doing with the Black Death here? They wouldn't know what you were talking about, <laughs> probably. They didn't have that term widely used in England at that time. It was just the plague, mm -hmm. often referred to as the Great Plague, because there were other plagues. And uh, the bubonic plague, that term, comes from bubo, which is an old word for an inflamed, enlarged, or painful gland in the groin, which was one of the main symptoms of bubonic plague that died out. But I, I like that because uh, bubonic sounds kind of learned and scholarly, but bubo, it's a bump 
it's, it's a nice Anglo-Saxon sounding. I don't know if it's Anglo-Saxon, but it sounds simple and everyday and ordinary. Like, a, you know, you've got a boo-boo on your finger. Oh, no, that's a boo-boo. Much worse. <laughs> Let's uh, move on from Black Death, shall we? Maybe talking about bladder in throat will uh, lift our spirits a little bit, or maybe not. Well, what is that, yeah. bladder and throat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the first thing you might think is it's some connection between urine and breathing or something, but no, that's not it. Bladders were often associated in Renaissance times with uh, animal bladders that were used like balloons. You would blow them up and uh, you could hit people with them and, uh, you know, jesters would use them. And so uh, when people said bladder at that time, they were more likely to think of a balloon-like object. Um, and if you had a disease that caused inflammation and swelling of the tonsils, the throat, or the windpipe, so that you had trouble breathing or swallowing, you were said to have a bladder in throat, bladder in the throat. So you have something like a balloon blocking the airway. So this could could have been just a sore throat or a strep throat or something, some soreness in the throat. It's not just so much soreness. It's that it prevents you from breathing freely or mm-hmm. swallowing well. So mm-hmm. it's like you're feeling the passage sort of semi-blocked up. So it could be a, an allergic reaction to something, too. Yeah, yeah I suppose it could, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, okay. The, never mind. That wasn't all that pleasant after all. It sounded funny, bladder and throat, but it's very unpleasant also. What about uh, uh, chilblain? Am I saying this correctly? Yes. I, I don't know this one at all, so let's let's find out about chilblain. Um, I remember my mother complaining of chilblains, so um, it's still around. One of the interesting features of the Oxford English Dictionary now is they have this little dot chart that looks a little bit like the, the bars on your phone that, that tell you how many... Uh, how strong a connection you have. The mm. number of dots indicates how much a word is still in current use. And chilblain still has a good deal of currency, um, although it's not treated as a distinct disease now, but it would be a swelling of the extremities caused by exposure to cold. So a blain, B-L-A-I-N, was an inflammatory swelling on the skin. It was derived from the Latin word for leg. There were not only chilblains, by the way, caused by cold, there were hot blains as well. On the feet, these were called sometimes kibes. So if you had a sore swelling on your heel in particular, or elsewhere on your feet, it would be called kibe, K-I-B-E-S. And this turns up in Shakespeare. Hamlet is uh, talking about the gravedigger before he starts conversing with him. The age has grown so picked that the toe of the peasant comes so near the heel of the courtier, he gaffs his kibe. <laughs> that's one of those passages that needs a little translation, I think, for modern readers. Uh, yeah, we're, we're a little out of touch of that language. What he's saying is in modern times, the social classes have gotten so evened out that low-class peasants' uh, toe uh, comes right on the heels of a, a nobleman, a courtier. And uh, so so close behind him that he steps on his heel and and hurts his kibe, his sore spot on his heel. All right, I'll bet you that 
passages cut out in a lot of performances because it would sound like absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, a more scholarly name for chillblain is Pernio, P-E-R-N-I-O, and you'll find that sometimes uh, used instead in modern accounts. And it, it's not something that happens to everybody. It's kind of an abnormal uh, reaction to a, a extreme cold to get this great swelling. I always assumed it was a pain when I was a kid. And uh, the, the idea of swelling didn't really come in. Yeah, I, I can't say, you know, I, I've been unfortunate enough to suffer from that one. You know, some cold or some hot has caused my leg to swell up. But uh, it's good to know there's a term for it if that were to happen, I guess. Let's, let's move on to the next one here, which is blood poisoning. According to your notes, is that a bacterial infection so we would we wouldn't call it blood poisoning anymore of course they thought well something was circulating the blood they didn't know what bacteria were and they didn't know what was causing it and uh the humors of course was one suggestion that it might be an imbalance in these humors but um somehow the blood had gotten poisoned and one of the ways to get rid of some poisoned blood was to lance the body or use cupping or use a cup-shaped sharp implement up against the blood to fill the cup with blood that came out of a vein. They did all kinds of horrible things. Of course, these are exactly the wrong thing you want to do from somebody that's being sick. It's a good example of how human scholarly ingenuity can persist in its horrible errors for centuries and centuries it took a long time there's a version of the robin hood story in which he is grievously wounded and taken care of by a nun who is secretly an enemy and she is going to help him here he is having suffered a loss of blood anyway so she she decides to bleed him some more as a treatment but she actually bleeds him to death I don't remember where I read that, and I haven't run into it again in years, but certainly bleeding certainly caused more suffering than it ever helped. Mm. Well, if you uh, mentioned blood poisoning these days, I'm sure people would leap straight to um, some sort of assassination plot or something like that and not think of a, a bacterial infection. Right. And in, and bacterial diseases were, uh, it took a long time after Lewinhoek, uh, observe bacteria through the microscope and uh, it was around the turn of the late 19th early 20th century that Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch both put forward the theory that diseases were caused by bacteria and that led to a revolution in medicine of course that we're still dealing with mm -hmm. today well there's plenty more to talk about I want to talk about carbuncle I want to talk about falling sickness I want to talk about king's evil and grip, of course, another great classic disease. I want to talk about all of these, but uh, maybe this is enough for now. And we'll hope that the new healthcare law does not bring back anything like ague cake or, or God forbid, black death. Okay, well, some Democrats are saying it may precipitate a, a loss of votes for the Republicans. Maybe that'll be their infection. I see. Okay. Well, well, when when that happens, we'll have to come up with a clever disease name for it. Let's talk more about some of these next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. 
The Common Arrows in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.